0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nikazi Oates, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Farah Jasmine Griffin. Farah is the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African American Studies at Columbia University and was the inaugural chair of its African American and African Diaspora Studies Department from 2019 to 2021. And recently she was selected as a Guggenheim Fellow and a Mellon Fellow in Residence. We'll be talking about her new book, Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature, out today. Farah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for our conversation today. So I want to begin with a bit about yourself. You have been a professor for 30 years, and I want to know what motivated you to become a professor and choose this as a career for you.
1: Well, um, you know, I, I didn't even know what it took to become a professor. I, um, I had no idea about the process, how one you know had a career in um, university and college teaching, but I think my motivation came from my, my professors and mentors when I was a college student. I mean, I always loved books. I always loved reading and writing, and um, I loved history and, and literary criticism and all of those things but I was on my way to law school, and I had two professors, um, Nathan Huggins, the historian, and Werner Solars, the literary critic. And they encouraged me as a sophomore to think about um, going to graduate school and becoming a professor. So they were my primary motivation. And then I thought that it would be a very self-indulgent career (laughs) to (laughs) spend time doing what I love, which was reading and writing. I had a very romantic view of of what being a professor was. But um I decided to, you know, give it a try. So th- that was my primary motivation.
0: Wow. I did not know that your intentions were to go to law school. That's fascinating.
1: I applied to law school. I got in law school. I deferred law school. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And then you went to graduate school.
1: (laughs) I I actually deferred law school and went to graduate school for a year and then thought I would defer it again. And then I had one of those, you know, one of those moments where I was like, what are you doing? You know, you're not going to go to law school. (laughs) I wrote them and told them that I wouldn't be coming.
0: (laughs) Wow. And here you are today, a professor for 30 years. That's fantastic. You know, one of the things that. I think as a whole, um, we don't talk enough about publicly, the moments of um, great trepidation or anxiety um, that appears throughout our career. And so I wanted to know if you could um, think about a time during your career in which you had a moment of either self doubt or insecurity, but then also Reflect on a moment where you had um, just reassurance for um, a project that you were thinking about, your particular analysis of a thing that you were studying or that this was the indeed the career that um, you wanted to pursue.
1: Wow, that's such a great question. Um, I think you know self-doubt and trepidation are part of the process. So I'm so glad you you asked that question and that anyone who is pursuing um, a life of the mind and, you know, intellectual career, academic, whatever career, know that um, self-doubt and trepidation are part of the process. Because part of what you're doing is you're, you're putting your ideas into the void. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I think, you know, the question for me would almost be, when did I not have it? Mm-hmm. Um And I'll give you, you know, almost every single book I wrote, my dissertation, there's always this crisis moment where I felt like either someone else had done it and done it better, Mm -hmm. or I read some article that I convinced myself is they've said what I was going to say in a book already, um, or that my ideas just, you know, they aren't gelling, they aren't right, they aren't together, they aren't coming together. Mm -hmm. And I've learned now that that is part of the process. I will say that was not, this is the only book I've written where I didn't have that experience, Mm -hmm. but I think it's because I had it before. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give you that. I initially was going to, um, I thought that my next book was going to be a book about Morrison's works and that it would be a book about all of Toni Morrison's works geared to Um, people who wanted to teach her at the college level or even high school level. Um, But I thought of it as a book for readers of Morrison, students of Morrison's and teachers of Morrison. And I had it all in my head and I gave a couple of talks and, you know, I was good to go and I was ready to write a proposal and I'd actually written a grant proposal for sabbatical leave. And, and then one day I was um, going for a walk and it dawned on me that I wasn't writing a book about Toni Morrison. And at that point, I really didn't know what I was writing a book about, but that I had done all this work and thinking about her work um, and, and had a great deal of pleasure and satisfaction in doing that. But I remember it hit me. And the late James Cone, um, who taught at Union and with whom I used to have lunch twice a year, I told him, I ran into him in a talk and he said, how are you doing? And I said, I i don't know what the heck I'm doing. I I just decided today that I, that book I was writing on Morrison is not about Morrison. And he said, that must be the most frightening and the most freeing experience you could have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we talked about it. And that was a moment of triumph because here was someone, a senior scholar to me who I loved and admired who, um, knew exactly what I was feeling and and, and and knew that it was frightening to have thought you knew what you were doing and you weren't, that's not what you were doing, but also gave me the gift of recognizing that it was also freeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think because I had that experience before writing this book, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I didn't have it in the course of writing it, but everything I've written, I have that um, moment of self-doubt or trepidation or concern it's just part of the process
0: mm-hmm. wow as you say that i think about um a an anecdote that professor morrison um um told uh, when she wrote uh, beloved um and i'm sure you are familiar with with um, this example professor Griffin. so when she says um she was working for a Random House for a number of years. And um, her editor said, you know, um, you should really focus on your career as a writer. Um, so I think even in the preface of Beloved, she says uh, um, she doesn't know if she was fired or if she resigned. <laughs> <laughs> but she she left her job and, and decided to um, right. And so she um, was looking outside of her home and she saw um, Beloved come up from the water and
2: mm-hmm.
0: she said she, when she left that job, she was like anxious and she realized, oh, this is what happiness is. Yeah, right. And I think about that in relationship to what um, Professor James Cone said um, to you that this is the liberating, this must be the freeing and liberating thing that Mm -hmm. I think we have this perception of um, the romanticism or the romanticized idea of what freedom, liberation, happiness like actually is. Um, And that those elements are free from trepidation or any type of nervousness or anxiety that one um, actually possesses, that they are intertwined in the pursuit of happiness, liberation, or freedom.
1: Absolutely, because it's, you're approaching the unknown, mm. right? It's mm-hmm. unknown territory. Mm-hmm. So you're excited by it, but you're also afraid, a little cautious, a little, you should be. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, is, it is the unknown, and the blank page is the unknown. Mm. Um, our minds, what's going on in our minds, we don't, you know, something might make perfect sense in our head, and then we put it down on paper, and it doesn't make sense at all. Mm -hmm. Or we have a lot of work to do Mm -hmm. to get get it from the beginning so that people understand what it is that we're thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think you know, it's a different, it would be, I'm sure someone's done work on it, but the process of being in that creative space where you're generating ideas, um, you're very myopic. So everything, everything you see Everything you hear, you think in some way is related to what you're working on. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's either a sign that you're doing something right or a sign that you're doing something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's just the kind of state of mind that you're in.
0: Mm. Right, right. And thinking about the state of mind, I want to turn to this fantastic book that you have um, given to us, which is Read Until You Understand. And as an entry point into today's conversation, I wonder if you could read um, an excerpt from the book, perhaps a couple pages um, in the the first chapter.
1: Yes, of course, I'd be happy to, thank you. Uh, This is from chapter one, Legacy, Love, Learning. My formal study of African-American history and literature did not begin until college. My love of them began much earlier with my father, who believed teaching was an act of love. Because I adored my father and cherished being with him, I experienced learning as love. A natural born storyteller, he would make our weekly visits to the public library, bookstores, and many of Philadelphia's historic landmarks come alive. The history of the nation's founding was more than a rendering of facts. Though my father's sorry, through my father's eyes, it became an epic tale of bold and courageous characters challenging stuffy old men in Europe. His tellings were cinematic in their sense of adventure. An old fedora hat became a tri hat like those worn by the 18th century Philadelphians who changed the course of history. On days off from his job as welder at the Sunship Building Company in Chester, Pennsylvania, after work and on the weekend, He took me to Philadelphia's Elfrith's Alley, the nation's oldest residential street, to Independence Mall and to the various sites that surround it. He purchased copies for me of the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, which were reproduced on parchment paper for tourists and history buffs. Before I started school, he had me memorize and recite the preamble to the Constitution, the opening of the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, and the Presidents of the United States, all the skills he had learned as a Philadelphia schoolboy during the Depression. He followed my recitations with questions. What do you think that means? Let's look up that last word in a sentence. This was not a practice he reserved for me, nor did he do it out of recognition of my intellectual precocity. My cousins, my older sister Myra, and her children all received the same instruction. My father's lessons did not derive from an uncritical patriotism. At times, I think he exposed me to our nation's founding fathers and the ideals they espoused so I would understand the enormity of their transgression, the enormity of the betrayal. Along with the founding fathers, he also introduced me to Toussaint Louverture, Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and the Black Panther Party, and Angela Davis. He held dear intellectual freedom fighters who risked their lives to combat not only the men and women who oppressed them, but also the system of oppression itself. We read and discussed the Panthers Ten Point Program, which appeared on the back of the party's newspaper, and he pointed out the similarities to the Declaration of Independence. The Black Panther, along with Mohammed Speaks, Black World, the Philadelphia Tribune, and a bevy of other Black publications, showed how divided, as a nation, our understanding of events and actions could be. For instance, although the mainstream print and broadcast media portrayed Angela Davis as a dangerous communist and a fugitive from the law who was on the FBI's most wanted list, these Black publications described Sister Angela as a brilliant philosopher committed to the project of our freedom. These publications also showed that Black thinkers articulated a sense of Black history and culture that stretched beyond the borders of the United States. Thus, my father used them to introduce me to figures such as Kwame Nkrumah, the first prime minister and president of independent Ghana, Jomo Kenyatta, prime minister and president of the Republic of Kenya, Patrice Lumumba, first democratically elected prime minister of Congo, and others all founding fathers of modern Black nations engaged in the intellectually rigorous process of nation building. My father did not limit his pantheon of Black brilliance to political thinkers. Miriam Makiba joined Abby Lincoln and Nina Simone as shining examples of gifted artists who used their art to speak out against racism and the plight of Black women. Their images graced the pages of publications we read, Radiant Black Women, Who did not seek to emulate white beauty standards and whose intellectual legacies continue to challenge democracy to live up to its radical promise of equality. Our frequent visits to Philadelphia's historic sites were supplemented by our attending protests and rallies. Among these, I vividly remember the Black Panther Party's Revolutionary Constitutional Convention of 1970, which was hosted by the activist Church of the Advocate in North Philadelphia. My mother let me wear an afro and made me a dashiki dress for the occasion. I recall the excitement of the people who crowded the street. I reveled in their expressions of affection and concern for me. Look at that little sister. I also recall the heavily armed police who stood with guns and riot gear and the anticipation of the pending arrival of Huey P. Newton, the charismatic chairman of the Black Panther Party, the proximity of the gun-wielding officers to the entrance of the church is an image that lives with me still. Interestingly, unlike many of his generation, my father was not a religious man. One of the earliest words I recall him teaching me was agnostic. He had eschewed the church of his youth long before I was born. As a young man, he aligned himself with the beboppers, hip intellectuals, skeptical of all orthodoxies, and race-proud. He had a brief flirtation with the Nation of Islam, drawn to it more by its harsh critique of white supremacy than by any belief in its religious dogma. He eventually left because he thought it was hostile to independent, critical thinking. Nonetheless, he passed his love and admiration for Malcolm on to me. While he did revere democratic principles, he never talked about religious or spiritual concepts like mercy or grace. One Friday night, my father came home complaining, of a bad headache. Within an hour, he suffered what we learned was a severe cerebral hemorrhage. In the middle of the crisis, two Philadelphia police officers who had been called to our home debated taking him to the hospital because, as they insisted, he was, quote, drunk, unquote. He was not. He was not a drinking man, The difficult truth is my father was a hardworking man who struggled with heroin addiction and through much effort recently had overcome his habit. Eventually, the officers relented to my mother's pleas, put him on a stretcher, and placed the stretcher in the back of the paddy wagon. My mother and I sat on the rough wooden benches, and she alternated trying to hold me and trying to hold my father's stretcher down with the weight of her small body. The stretcher had not been secured and would slide with every sharp turn of the vehicle. At one point, it slid back and my father's head hit the door. Oh, Muzzy, my head, he cried. Muzzy was one of his nicknames for my mother. Those were the last words I recall hearing him say. When my mother and I heard news of Freddie Gray's 2015 death in Baltimore, we called each other, each of us quietly crying. Gray had been injured during an arrest, and the officers failed to secure the stretcher in the van while transporting him to the police station. Echoes of that night in March 1972 shook both of us. And, as we have done countless times in the years since, We sought comfort in each other. On that night, when finally we arrived at Philadelphia General Hospital, the doctors and nurses rushed the stretcher down the hall. I never saw my father again. Within a week of this traumatic incident, he was dead. He was 45 years old. I was nine. Emerson Maxwell Griffin did not grant me any meaningful conception of heaven so I never assumed he was looking over me from the clouds above. Nor was I concerned about him burning for an eternity, as I only learned of that possibility years later from saved Christian classmates who sought to frighten me into salvation. I did instinctively feel his presence and chose to believe his spirit guided me, especially in my reading. A voracious lover of books and jazz music My father was rarely without a paperback book in his back pocket. When he died, I inherited all of his books and albums and the love of learning that he bequeathed to me. An upstairs clothing closet held hundreds of books, as did the dining room china cabinet. Another set of drawers under the buffet held albums and 45 RPM records. And the cellar, where we had a coal-burning stove before transferring to gas heat, house crates full of old magazines, including Ebony, Jet, Sepia, Tan, Negro Digest, and Black World, scrapbooks holding newspaper clippings from the Pittsburgh Courier and the Philadelphia Tribune, and a number of black-and-white composition books filled with notes. I carry a tremendous sense of loss and guilt about the notebooks, loss because I no longer have them, guilt because I carried them to college, placed them in a storage space over the summer, and never retrieved the box that held them along with my high school yearbook and a volume of Shakespeare. Following my father's death, our little row house was a virtual archive, my mind's playground. In addition to books, there were two of his paintings. One was a self-portrait which hung in the hallway upstairs. The other was a slave coffle filled with black bodies and black overseers, a slave castle in the distance. This one graced a wall in our living room. Under the careful guidance of my mother, I lost myself in the pages and sounds my father left behind. This was my inheritance, my legacy. Little did I know, it would also become my life's work. Driven by my desire to make sense of and give meaning and order to a life forever unavailable to me, I chased him in the ideas he bequeathed me. What did he read? What did he listen to? What did he think about James Baldwin and Mary Lou Williams? How did he learn to paint? And why did he make lists of dynamic verbs? Did he ever believe in God? In the absence of my father, African-American literature served as a constant spiritual and intellectual companion.
0: Wow. Professor Griffin, that is such a powerful Opening of this book, and I think it offers a great basis for understanding yourself as well as your father. And as you were reading, and as I read the book, I saw some parallels between your father and um, different people in my family. Um, My mother, um, I have a twin sister, and Mm -hmm. um, I I come from a large family, but uh, I remember. my mother um, made us uh, get our library card at the age of six and I still, and she still has a library card with my, you know, um, childhood handwriting on it, but she made it a point that every, every Friday we would go to the library um, mm-hmm. and, and pick out a book. And so I re- recall that. And there's so many things to um, grapple with and, the reading that you just provided, one of the things I love um, about your father and, and your rendering of of your father is that he is drawn on several sources to identify and shape what blackness means for him, mm-hmm. right? And um, he sounds like that he um, leans more on like the radicalism of, of blackness, mm-hmm. but then also um, pan Africanism with um, the attentiveness to the continent and um, um, freedom fighters as well as singers like Miriam Makeba, who are um, wrestling with these ideas transnationally. So I love how um, he is nuanced in Blackness um, and his construction of it for himself, but then also passing it forward to you. I think it's just really, really stunning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. No. I mean, I think that, you know, you're so right that he is, um, he's, you know, borrowing from all of these different sources to construct a sense of, um, what it means to be black in his moment. And I, I think that, um, you know, when I look back on the, the things that he was most invested in, um, the things that helped shape him, you know, as a young man, a kind of, um, bebop culture, um, which also had its own kind of um, transnational elements, right? Mm-hmm. And and then come, you know, also, you know, the it was the period of African independence and um, all of these kind of independence movements and and sort of the birth of new nations and mm-hmm. and it was a very heady and exciting time mm-hmm. for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think all of those kinds of things helped to shape him and then a certain kind of street smartness, you know, and mm-hmm. and hipness about. Um, Uh, about Black life that definitely was part of his identity as well. Um, And I think all of those things were available and evident in um, the books and the images and the records that he read and listened to and imbibed Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm.
0: You have written four um, single author books, and I'm sure you have received countless questions Um, either informally or formally about, you know, why write about your father. Mm -hmm. But I want to, you know, table that particular question, and I want to think about form and genre. Tell me why you decided to write in the genre of autobiography or um, partly uh, or partial autobiography um, Mm -hmm. for this book in particular.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I initially began to write, um, in a kind of autobiographical form using the, I, the first person, um, in my book on Billie Holiday, uh, which has a similar kind of opening because it, it's about my father introducing me to jazz and my listening to Billie Holiday after my father died, Mm -hmm. um, as an entry point. Um, And so I'd done it before, and this was a kind of return to that moment of fleshing out of that story. Um, The autobiographical voice is one in terms of literary voices that comes most naturally to me. It's the one that wants to be expressed (laughs) the most, Um, the one that comes out with um, the least pretense for me. Um, And I, I, felt that for this project, I needed to honor that. Mm-hmm. But also I think um, what I wanted to say in this book in many ways was that black literature and and culture has much to teach us, even if we aren't trained as critics, mm-hmm. right? even mm-hmm. if we don't get PhDs. And that in fact, um, it was very meaningful to me and very meaningful to my father and to many people um, who never would enter into a college classroom. Um, mm-hmm. And I needed to tap into that part of myself and my own personal history um, in order to write about the books with the kind of passion that I wanted to express. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be honest about. I didn't want to have a kind of um, critical distance um, I wanted to say these were books that were transformative and life-changing and that were had a lot of potential and possibility to change individuals, but to also change the world mm. outside of what literary critics and literary theorists mm. have to say about them. Mm. Mm.
0: And as you say that Black literature has much to teach us, one um, writer that comes to mind um, that's absolutely um, in the, the the genre of Black literature is Professor Toni Morrison. And um, in most of your chapters, um, you engage her. And mm-hmm. aside from this particular book, I know that she is a consistent um, interlocutor, a consistent thinker for you. Yes. And August marked the second anniversary of Professor Morrison's passing. And I just want to take a moment to talk about what she has meant for you and if you have a favorite or enduring memory of her.
1: Mm. So um, yes, I think my father and Morrison's works, her books are um, the most kind of consistent presence in my intellectual life. Um, And she has, her work helped shape so much of my thinking. Um, about so many things. And so as you say in, in this book, the book is dedicated to her and um, she her work appears and helps to shape and, and drive um, much of the book. I mean, I think almost every chapter, there's something about Morrison or from Morrison. Um, so it's not only um, the plots of her book or the language of her books which are important, but it's the way of her way of thinking. The way she helps me frame intellectual questions, all of that, mm. um, and then I always felt like the luckiest person in the world because you know I grew up to actually know a childhood hero, you know, or a teenage mm. hero or something, mm. someone who I who I just um, meant so much to me as a figure and as a writer, um, as a as a the way that she was in the world. The way that she handled her fame, um, mm. I just looked at her from afar and admired her so much, and and consider one of the great blessings of my life that I had the opportunity to come to know and love her personally. Mm. Um, and when I think of her, two things happen. Um, whenever something happens, I think, "Oh God, I wish I wish Tony were here to, um, so I'd know what she thought about this." Right. Or, she, she would put the right words to this or what would she say to us about this moment? Mm-hmm. Um, I also think of her, I think about her sense of humor, mm-hmm. which was naughty, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, smart and funny and so black in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I think about her laugh, mm-hmm. just like, just the most beautiful, meaningful laugh. Um, and, and, sort of rings in my ears so you know those are the things that i I think that both make me miss her deeply but also i I go right and after as soon as i miss her i have just such deep gratitude for all that all that she gave
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely i have um one um encounter that i will always treasure um with professor morrison um this was a few years ago, I think five, six, seven, somewhere in there <laughs> um, years ago. Um, I um, graduated from college and I was an intern at a magazine um, based in New York. And um, interns were um, essentially fact checkers. And mm-hmm. I was um, assigned um, as a fact checker for Professor Morrison. And um, she wrote a piece for the magazine um, that was celebrating, um, I think, their 150th anniversary. And so mm-hmm. I got to fact check that piece and it was gorgeous. Um, and I think many people um, would remember it. It's the, um, it's headlined, um, no place for self pity, no room for mm-hmm. fear. Um, and that would be the last um, piece that she um, produced for that particular magazine. So that um, was really, really special um, to, to work with her and to be assigned her, her editor. I mean, not editor. Oh, my goodness. Um, her fact checker. Um, and I learned a lot from that um, experience and from her. And um, I deeply, deeply treasure that.
1: Wow. That's a really wonderful experience to have had. That's yeah,
0: really, that, I, that's a gift. It really is. And I was, um, young at the time. So I was 22 and I was the youngest intern, <laughs> um, in my cohort. Um, and so I'm just really, really grateful for that experience and all that I learned from her as, I mean, that was a beautiful piece, but really speak in, as you said, speaking to this moment, um, that that um, piece spoke to the um, 2016 election, although it wasn't 2016 at, at the time. I think mm-hmm. the primaries were happening or um, beginning to um, uh, get started. And so, I mean, it really spoke to um, fear and what do we do when life, as we know, has been upended? And you know, it was just a really profound piece. And um, you know, like you, um, Farah, I think about what would Professor Morrison have to say right now yeah. in 2021. Um so that that's something that I hold dear. And um as you recall, all the the characteristics of Professor Morrison, her laugh, her blackness
2: <laughs>
0: are are things that I recall. And those are the things that you know, humanizes all of us too, right? So as much as she was a um, a, a talented and gorgeous writer, she also was this <laughs> um, great um, woman who understood and was rooted in her Blackness. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to turn to, as I mentioned, um, August marked the anniversary of her passing. Mm -hmm. In this line of death, um, I think about um, one of the the writers and poets that you discuss and read until you understand, Lynxon Hughes Mm -hmm. in in his poem, Dear Lovely Death. And I want to know how that poem helped you to reconcile death broadly, but then more specifically, the death of your father.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that poem, just so meaningful to me. And, and and I don't know that it was so much the death of my father, although it helped me understand some things, I think, that I had experienced. I, I also went through a spate of very quick deaths of um, in quick succession, deaths of family members who were very close to me, my sister, and then three of her four children, all of whom were older than me, slightly older than me, but still young. They, they died young. And um and at the same time that that was happening, there were all these kind of, you know, vigilante and police deaths happening um, as well. And I just went back to that Hughes poem and read it over and over again, because in that poem, you know, he the, the persona addresses death it's to death
2: Mm -hmm. right he's he's not
1: talking to us and he says dear lovely death and i was like lovely dear lovely death you know Mm -hmm. and um but he says um you know that you don't death doesn't constitute the end it constitutes change Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i spent a lot of time kind of meditating on that and what that meant and that it that Right. That for those of us who are left behind, the death of a loved one is not the end. It's that that person, their their presence, their memory, our mourning of them can be lifetime. Right. Mm-hmm. They, well, we just have a different relationship to them. Um, and so what we have is something changed, <laughs> a changed relationship, but not the end of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, I think that it was a metaphysical to me, too, because it was like well, death doesn't have to be you know it's the end of that person's existence as we know it in bodily form here on this earth but perhaps it also means the change of the energy that they represented that they were you know that they were not only flesh and bone Mm -hmm. there was something about that energy that we also knew that sometimes maybe we still feel you know Particularly shortly after their death, so I love that poem because it didn't give answers; it raised questions, mm. and that's always um, as a as a thinker and a writer. I think that's what we we live in the questions, mm. you know. And I think even as a, as people of faith, people of faith, truly, you know, um, some of them are just have absolute blind faith, and some of them. Are constantly questioning, and and it's, I think it's in the questions that we grow. So that's what that poem meant for me. You know, um, that death is not the end; it is a change. And then, well, what is that change? What does that mean?
0: And to that point, you offer some beautiful insights of death, and I just want to read a portion of that. Um, you write, in addition to my fi- familiarity with death. I also have the sense that the dead were not gone. After my father died, I sometimes saw wisps of smoke like that from a genie's bottle, which I attribute to his presence. I come from a culture that makes room for the dead in our daily lives. No one found these visitations hard. They expected them. As long as I found them comforting, My family expressed no concern. My father did not believe in ghosts, but we believed in his. The omnipresence of death in our lives might be the reason we were so open to the possibility of visitations from the dead. Might it have been yet another mechanism to help us have some sense of control over the otherwise senseless occurrence of frequent death? This is so rampant in of a spiritual tradition passed down to us from African cosmologies, some understanding of the presence of the ancestors in the realm of the living. We never spoke about it in this language, but it was a logic that seemed to govern our existence.
2: Mm.
0: Just wonderful insight, wonderful insight. But then also as you remark, there's this, Um, understanding this, this um, spiritual understanding that most black people have, that it's part of the cycle of life. And as you say, um, the dead are still here. They're just not here in the, in their present form as we know.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, cultures throughout time have, and and not just African derived cultures, Mm -hmm. but um, I believe that and I and I don't think that it can be easily dismissed as superstition no, um that there is there is wisdom in pe- in the culture that people produce and you know there's a lot of ignorance in the culture that people produce yes. too <laughs> yes but, um, I I think that to simply be dismissive of um the ways that humans throughout time have come to understand death um, we we can't be dismissive of it, and and I, you know. I grew up, as I say there, in a family, in a community, in a culture who didn't want you dwelling too long with the spirits of the dead, <laughs> you know, like, um, largely because that was fearful, and and it was you it was fearful that you would soon join them if you wanted to dwell with them too long, but that um, but that there was nothing, um, strange or or odd about um feeling or sensing their energy or the spirit particularly um after shortly after they died so it it gave an explanation and if it were comforting and not um kept you from didn't keep you from dealing with the reality of this world Mm -hmm. then it was fine and and in fact it was something it was an insight that was valued and treasured
2: Mm
1: -hmm. so um I just wanted to be able to give voice to that. And I think that sometimes, you know, in, in our academic voices, we are trained to train to question those things and distance ourselves from them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this, in those sections that you read, I wanted to dwell with it for Mm -hmm. a moment. I didn't want to dismiss it and explain it away, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. but to really dwell with it and, and deal with the logic of it. Um, you know, as well as the, um, spiritual insight of it. Mm.
0: I wanna talk about another theme um, presented in the book, which is love. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the chapter, the transformative potential of love, you offer so many um, conceptualizations of love. Um, Another great uh, writer and thinker um, that you wrestle with in in the book is James Baldwin. Um, and James Baldwin helped you to see black romantic love um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: in a particular way. So I want you um, to talk about that if you could um, and also want to acknowledge that um, August is also another month um, because um, particularly in black life, because um, it's the um, birth month of James Baldwin and yeah. Last month, he um, would have been 97 years mm-hmm. old. Um, so just talk to me about um, Baldwin and how he helped you to see the form of Black romantic love, um, particularly in the characters of Tish and Fani, and If Bill Street Could Talk.
1: Yeah, no, um, so, you know, Baldwin of course writes about love in all of its incarnations mm-hmm. um, and he writes about love um, interracial love. And he writes about same sex love. And um, I chose um, Fish and Tish and Bonnie and If Beale Street Could Talk because I was remembering when I first read that book. And um, I read it as a teenager. And it reminded me of the love story that I would hear about my mother and father. Um, teenage love and how um, our community and our family seems so invested in in their story and in telling their story. Um, so I turned to that. I could have turned to any number of Baldwin works to to talk about romantic love, but that one resonated the most. And um, I think it was because it's not only a love story. About these two young lovers who are from you know the hood <laughs> um, and 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 who are not wealthy who are struggling and Fanny is wrongly accused of a crime you know crime that he did not commit and he's imprisoned um, so there's the intensity of their love story but Baldwin uses that as a way of encircling them in other forms of love right so the family love that supports and. Supports them. And then the love of people outside of the family and outside of the community um, that care for them, whether it be an Italian shopkeeper or a Jewish landlord or Spanish restaurant workers. Um, And he uses that story of romantic love. Um, He says something like, When people look at them, uh, they know something wonderful can happen, that wonderful things do happen, Mm. which is what I, I, I think. Um, I think that explains the response of my family and my community to my parents. but also I think Baldwin uses it to model a world um, the way the world might be mm-hmm. um, and the way certainly the way the nation could be. Mm-hmm. you know he, he shows that it's not a place of justice and love for black people, for, mm-hmm. particularly for poor black people. Mm-hmm. but it could be if people behaved in the way, that, funny, that Tish's family behaves or that the Italian shopkeeper behaved or that the Jewish landlord in that. It, it, Baldwin always gives us that sense of possibility mm-hmm. of what we can build on mm-hmm. to make things better. And um, he does it beautifully so in If Beale Street Can Talk.
0: Yeah, and another passage that i link linked um, to um, If Beale Street Can Talk to your understanding of um, your parents' um, relationship and and love for each other. Um, You write, in following my father's death, their story took on um, another great meaning. It was told to me to remind me that I was the product of love, that no matter what the world, white people and later bougie black people might say, or think my parents loved and respected each other and I was the result of that my well-being my gifts my successes were a result of their investment in and of love I just think that's just great and you know thinking about Baldwin and particularly if Bill Shrew can, can talk I think um, accentuates like um, your understanding of of love and black romantic love
1: absolutely um it it completely accentuates it and and black romantic love as I understand it in my book and in if Beale Street could talk is um a love that is tethered to um a larger community mm. and a broader community. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is enabled by that, you know, one of the things that I look at was I look at Tish and Fanny, and they remind me of um, the earlier young couple in in Baldwin in Go Tell It on the Mountain. Mm -hmm. um, Elizabeth and I I can't now I'm forgetting um, I'm forgetting John Grimes's father's biological father's name, Um, but they are another young couple deeply in love with each other. Um, but they don't have the support of community. Mm. They don't have the support of family. Mm. Um, so that when they're confronted with the violence of police violence and racism, they don't have anything to help hold them together. Mm. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like Baldwin revisits them with Tish and Fani. And wants to believe in their possibility so he doesn't leave them hanging out there all alone, you know, because they're actually just babies themselves. Mm -hmm. He doesn't leave them hanging alone. You know, he he gives them a family that loves them, that is not judgmental. He gives them a community that supports them. He gives them um, white people and Latino people and Jewish people who um, love and support them as well so that they can survive. Uh, The community needs the example of the young love. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. young love needs the support of the community. Mm -hmm.
0: And when you um, mention uh, Black communal love, I also think about, you know, um, Black familial love. And I think about um, the poet Nikki Giovanni's um, poem, Nikki Rosa. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And in the final um, lines of, the poem um she says black love is black wealth it's right and i think about that and in that poem she remarks one you know um she or the speaker um says that she doesn't want any person to write any white person to write a biography on them because they're only going to see the struggle and they're not going to understand the nuances that actually like i was quite happy we had great (laughs) christmases great birthdays um Mm -hmm. We had fresh water to bathe in. We had very good barbecues. And that's actually what it like that that is black love. That is our inheritance. Although um other um populations, particularly white people, may not understand it. for yeah. us, this is this is our wealth, our yeah. love for. Each other for the family and for the community.
1: Absolutely, I love that poem. I, I first encountered that poem in Toni Cade's "The Black Woman," mm. um, and I remember seeing, you know, that it had it had some Nikki in there, and then mm. that was the poem. I really hope no white person ever has cause to write about me. Yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> because they will only see the bad stuff, right? right. That's right. exactly that's right, exactly, right. right, right, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's so true. It's so true, and I think Baldwin knew that. And he knew, um, he knew, you know, he certainly knew all of the, 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 the horror that we were up against, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's like that moment in, and I I think I quoted the moment in, um, the fire next time where he's been talking about all the difficulty and Mm -hmm. how bad it it is. And he says, but wait, I can't leave it at that. Right. There was much more to it than that. Right. Right. In that space. Okay. Then what is the much more, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that and the much more to it is what Nikki Giovanni gives us in that poem, and it's what I think Baldwin gives us in um, "If Beale Street Could Talk."
0: Yes, yeah. So in the chapter, you offer you know so many ways to think about love, like love as um, selfhood, and you cite um, particular Baby Suggs' holy, which um, I took a class with um, um, Kevin Kwashi, and mm-hmm. it was on Toni Morrison and. Um that <laughs> we have this uh, a joke like, um, um, you can't you can't assassinate um, uh, you can't for me, you can't assass- assassinate um, baby Suggs holy. Um, and so you cite her, um, you mentioned radical love um, and public love. So there's so many ways to think about love, which I'm so appreciative of. And I want to, um, coupled that with what you said in the beginning in the opening of this book with your father um, when you said, my formal study of African-American history and literature did not begin until college. My love of them began much earlier with my father who believed teaching was an act of love. Mm-hmm. And I'm just captivated by that, the act of love. And what do you think your father's conception of Of love was,
1: Mm. yeah. You know, I think my father was a frustrated teacher. Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, my I can remember my cousin and I being instructed by him, like, like on a toy blackboard (laughs) (laughs) chalk. But I do think that if he, when he loved people, particularly when he loved children, um, he wanted to share. Um, his joy in learning with them. Um, all of us who were taught to write, like actually taught how to write our names, all of us were taught by my father before we started school. And I have a cousin who's younger than I am who, um, she would get so frustrated. She would just make these little marks. Her name is Anne. And she would make these little marks that look like no letter anywhere. And he'd say, Anne, what are those things? And she'd say, those are Annans. Like she named them after herself. <laughs> and then he would, you would hear him reading his book you know, in the evening and he would say, damn it, that Ann has been in my book because there are those Annans everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think about it, that was time that he spent with children, mm-hmm. you know, um, and he spent, just as, just like he would spend time teaching them, he would teach us music or um, teach us, you know, a joke or, or something. Um, teaching was part of his demonstration of love. Mm-hmm and care. And it was something that he was giving to you. It was a gift. um, And that it was teaching you how to think on your own, how to be independent, how to have ideas. And I think that he, um, and I think that, I I actually think that all great teachers, um, because I do think to be a great teacher is a gift and an art. I think they all are invested in a love, and it's either love for the material, hopefully it's both, love for the material that they're teaching,
2: mm-hmm.
1: love for the for the people they're teaching mm-hmm. um, as well. And I, I, I think there's probably some theory of pedagogy that helps explain that, but that was my understanding of it because I think that was my father's understanding of
0: it. Mm-hmm. In the latter half of the book, um, you have this fantastic chapter on um, sound and music, um, which I also appreciate it. Um, and you're from Philadelphia, and there are some well-known um, Black <laughs> singers <laughs> um, from Philadelphia, Patti LaBelle, Teddy Pendergrass, and the list continues. Um, and Philadelphia has their own sound, you know, the <laughs> Philadelphia Soul and I want to know if you can just talk to me about the soundtrack of black music um in your household and how central black music is to um, the black working class and just the history of black people,
1: yeah, well, you know, um music is central to us. I think that's one of the things we 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 brought with us from um you know many African cultures uh, mm-hmm. of the African continent that you know that value, cherish, treasure music and the ways that music accompanies life, and that's mm-hmm. something that um, accompanied us through mm-hmm. the middle passage, through slavery. We invented um, beautiful lyrics and melodies and sounds, um, and so you know it's it's bone deep in our traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for us, it was just, you know, it was central. Like I say, I don't remember turning on the music because it was always on. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, it was on the radio. It was, it was on the stereo. It was, it was coming out of the cars. Mm-hmm. It was coming out of the stores. It was in the churches. I mean, it just was everywhere. It accompanied every moment of our lives. Um, and then it also became a mechanism. Of a kind of black um, economic independence, um, first through well, you know, Black Swan Records in the twenties, mm. first time, but but um, you know through Motown, the example of Motown, and then when I was growing up in Philadelphia, it was the sound of Philadelphia with Gamble and Huff, and as you say, all those great artists who came through. But there were many artists from Philadelphia who um, were not necessarily on the label, like. Philadelphia has a strong jazz tradition, mm-hmm. and, um, and then later on, when I returned to Philadelphia to um, to teach, you know, we had a strong neo soul tradition. I mean, yes. we had Boots, and we had um, Jill Scott, Jillie from North Philly, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think that Black Philadelphia is, you know, there is no history of Black music or Black sound without attention to. Um, Black Philadelphia and D- Detroit rightly gets a lot of attention because of Motown mm-hmm. and all the genius that it produced. Mm-hmm. But I think any enclave of Black life, particularly Black working class life, um, is going to also be an enclave of really important Black music history.
0: Mm-hmm. Before we end, I want to um, turn to um, Grace. Um, and as you say in the intro, um, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, this book begins with the girl and it ends with grace. And so I want to follow that um, for our uh, conversation. Um, so just like the chapter on love, um, you offer um, a conceptualization of grace. Um, and I was struck by this. Um, you do it through gardens, Um, which I think is just so beautiful. And that's the subject of the last chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the time, when I think about gardens, I think that gardens are constructed either outside or outdoors. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And the notion of outdoors drew me to a line that um, you quote in Professor Morrison's first book, The Bluest Eye, Mm -hmm. um, in which the narrator says, Um, outdoors, we knew that what the real terror was and um, the real terror of life. And I pair that with your chapter on gardens. And I think about um, the expressions of artistry, as you say, that I think of my family's urban gardens as expressions, not only of their artistry, but also their desire for a breathing space a space that mirrored their own lovely softness amidst the harsh concrete world they inhabited. And I also think about enslaved people, right, attending to their own gardens, um, as many writers have shown. Um, And then also, as you acknowledge, right, that gardening is, um, and many other scholars, I particularly think about, and writers, I think about Jamaican Kincaid, right,
2: Um,
0: that Black that gardening is a Black feminist practice. So in the last few moments that we have, could you talk to me about how the women in your family embody their own gardening practices and most importantly, grace?
1: Wow. Oh, what a beautiful question. Um, Yes, I think that uh, they embodied them, you know, I think especially of my mother and her sisters and, and my grandmother to a lesser degree. They embodied them because the gardens were, um, they were private. They were their own private space, but they were also spaces to be shared. They were things that they shared. So um, they, each each of them had, um, their gardens look very different. And until today, I'll walk by something and I'll say, oh, that looks like, that reminds me of Aunt Eunice or that remind that flower. Reminds me of On or something like that. Um, so that, you know, their sense of beauty, their sense of style um, also came through what they chose to cultivate in their gardens. Um, and their, I think their personalities, my mother is just, you know, she's baby and she's, um, you know, she's like, I don't have time to like plant a garden. I'm just going to throw these seeds and see what comes up. you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm. I would be uh, your mother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, What's that? What's that going to be? <laughs> 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 I'm like you know, yes. be it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, whereas my aunts were very meticulous, you know, and mm. this is a hydrangea, and this is what this land. This is a bush, and this is the the azaleas are going to come out at this time, and you know, so um they were in if they were like that uh, but they also shared things with each other you know that mm-hmm. something that they thought was especially beautiful um they would share like let's plant these bulbs so next year you'll have this kind of lily mm-hmm. you know as a gift it's just a kind of and these were hard-working women
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. who did not have very easy lives but there was ease in their company with each other mm-hmm. um they loved being with each other um And they had fun and deep laughter. And one of the things that they shared was their gardens. But they also, you know, this was true of both their gardens and their perfumes, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that there were certain things that were very specific to them. Um, Mm -hmm. And so my honor loves yellow roses and yellow. That's her flower, you know, Mm -hmm. and. Give, don't, do not give my mother a bouquet of yellow roses because those belong to Aunt mm. um And they were similar about the fragrances that they wore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that I just think of, when I think of them at their happiest um, and in moments of ease and moments of leisure and moments of freedom and moments of pleasure, I think of them in each other's company and I think of them in the things that they created, either food, you know, my one aunt was a great cook or the homes or my mother, the seamstress um, and their gardens Mm. uh, as this particular space of um, freedom and leisure and pleasure for Mm. them. Mm.
0: And then just really quick, you mentioned um, in the book, your maternal great grandmother, Mama Lula,
1: Yes, Mama Lula.
0: <laughs> Do you mind sharing um any memories that you have of her?
1: Sure. So she was my grandmother's mother. Mm-hmm. She lived with her youngest daughter, my aunt Fanny. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know how old she was, mm-hmm. like but you know the women on my mother's side, they they my my mother knew her great-grandmother um mm-hmm. who had been enslaved. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother knew her and I think I have a similar, my mother had much better memories with her great grandmother, my great grandmother. I just knew her as um, being elderly and sometimes, um, you know, very um, willful, Mm -hmm. but she was always someone to whom everyone paid respect. Mm -hmm. So at family gatherings, the most comfortable seat would be given to mama Lola. And, um, everyone who came in the house stopped and acknowledged her and hugged her and kissed her and told her how beautiful she was and for some reason everybody gave her money <laughs> so <laughs> like my cousins who were older than i like my cousins are like you know they would be like in their 20s um you know and he's like hip young men you know and they, you know, they were they were tough on the street, you know, but they would come in and they would talk to Mama and Lula and acknowledge her. And then they would give her money mm. like, and she'd put it in her little purse. <laughs> <laughs> so those are my memories of her, you know, that she was someone for whom we had a great deal of respect
2: mm.
1: and that people, you know, my grandmother and everyone had learned she had passed things down mm. Like mm-hmm. how to cook and how to do this and how to do that, and, um, you know. Th- those are my and I and I remember her just as um, having beautiful long gray hair.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Paying respect to the elders. Yes. Yes, I love it. I wanted to know really quick. Did you um, share the manuscript with your mother? And if so, what were her thoughts?
1: Oh wow! Yeah, I couldn't have written this without having shared it with her. So I wrote that first section that I read at the opening of our conversation. And I shared that with her and um, she called me and she said, I read what you wrote about your daddy. <laughs> and she said, and I love it. It's so beautiful. And I love your writing and you make him sound just like he was. And and I said to her, I said, mommy, I, um, did you notice that I mentioned that daddy struggled with addiction?" And she said, yes, I saw that. She said, but times have changed. Um, we don't talk about you know, people who have those struggles in the way we used to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And she said, and that was the truth of our lives. So you have to tell it. And I say that to say that there would be no book without my mother giving me the permission to write about it mm-hmm. right in the way that I did, honestly. Um, I just would not have written it had she not been comfortable with my telling our family story in the way that I do and so she was one of the people along with James Cone and different people along the way who gave me freedom to write this book in the way that I really wanted to write it and to and to write it in the way that it had to be written mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: the community of affirmation i love that yes.
1: yeah we don't need that yes
0: absolutely so, Farah, what are you working on now?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, um, <clears throat> I am working on getting this book out into the world and hoping mm-hmm. she has a soft landing. <laughs> yes, um, really thrilled and excited that that's happening, and I'm working on um, I have a collection of essays, kind of new and selected essays that I'm working on, uh right now and then some other projects that are just at that stage where they aren't ready to be put out into the world yet as ideas so mm-hmm. I'll just let you know that there, there will be some things forthcoming but the collection of essays will be probably what comes next
0: oh awesome well can't wait to read you know your writings I always enjoy um, the books that you have read you know I encountered you um, your first book who set you flowing which is Mm -hmm. remarkable and i've told you that before and i want to acknowledge um you and the effort and i believe that was born out of your dissertation
2: it was yeah
0: just phenomenal just phenomenal and i just always think about the projects that one has um during their course of graduate study Mm -hmm. um, and um how groundbreaking it is even in the um, training process um, and, and how the life of the mind of, of course it, um, evolves, but um, what one begins with is just truly stunning.
1: Thank you so much for your ongoing reading and your care, the care with which you read um, is really a, a gift to, to the writer. So thank you, thank you so much.
0: Thank you and Farrah Jasmine Griffin is the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African American Studies at Columbia University. Her latest book, Read Until You Understand The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature is out now with W.W. Norton and Company. Farah, I want to thank you so much for being on the show and I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you.